You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can make the show just a little bit better, shoot me an email from hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To listen to my catalog of past episodes and hear new ones every week, look for Hidden History on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, and by the time you get to the end of this episode, you think I deserve it, I'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the show on your preferred platform. It really helps me grow my audience. If you really want, you can also follow me on Twitter, at LSA Tucci. So, without further ado, on to the show. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you might be looking at the title of this episode and thinking, wow, Ellis really went kind of mask off with this one. Well, there's a reason for that. Uh, there is a very specific sect of extremely online people uh, who like to read the title of each episode without actually listening to it, uh, and then insult the show in very funny ways. Uh, because of last week's episode where I talked about how, you know, militaristic media can influence the way we think, uh, someone compared me to the East German secret police, which I mean... That's pretty unhinged, but also pretty funny. I mean, I wish my show was that influential, you know? But but unfortunately, that's not the case. I mean, I'm not gonna have my goons kidnap you in the middle of the night and teach you about labor economics. <laughs> so, anyway, the title of this week's episode exists pretty much exclusively to make those people as mad as possible. Uh, in the actual content of this week's episode, I'm going to talk about the creation of the early industrial factory system, uh, the material conditions that it produced, and the impact on our physical, social, and economic landscape. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 58. Capitalism is bad, actually. Eat your heart out. <laughs> so... If I'm talking about the creation of the factory system and the birth of industrial capitalism, then I need to start off by talking about the precursor to the modern factory, which is the watermill. Now, I'm pretty sure you all know what a watermill is. It's a mill with a great big water wheel, and it uses the force of the water to do... something. It can be a sawmill, it can be a knitting mill, it can be a grist mill, it can be a hammer mill, it could be a rolling mill, it can be a wire mill. The list goes on. It turns out there are a lot of things you can make with mills. Historian T.S. Reynolds, who has actually written quite extensively on the history of water wheels and mill technology, writes in his book, Stronger Than a Hundred Men, A History of the Vertical Water Wheel that the idea for the watermill likely came from the ancient Middle East in around the 3rd century BC, after which the technology slowly spread throughout Asia, Africa, and Europe, finding great popularity in the Roman Empire. Now, at this point, mills were pretty much exclusively used for grinding small amounts of grain into flour and as norias, which is a water wheel that uses hydropower to pump water into an aqueduct. Eventually, the idea spreads around the ancient world that, hey, water power is essentially limitless, and the watermill can make us a lot more productive. 
As a result, we begin to see the use of water power in other areas of ancient production. Sawmills, stamp mills, and tilt hammer mills slowly begin to appear on the banks of rivers around the world. And I think it's important to note at this point that this doesn't mean that the ancient world was industrialized. In most cases, not only were these extraordinarily small mills employing at most less than 10 people, but the product output of these mills didn't have an overwhelming impact on the ancient economy. There were just too few of them to make a real difference. Things continue on like this for quite a while. As civilizations develop more precise tools, slowly mills become more efficient, but still their industrial output is extremely limited, and so they have an overall relatively small impact on economic production. That was soon going to change. Now that we're getting to the part where the factory system is given life, I want to take a second to talk about just how things were done right before industrialization. It's time to talk about the putting out system and hand spinning. Producing textiles is a very time-intensive and complicated process. I mean, just think about it. To make a wool jacket before the invention of the knitting mill, first you've got to shear the sheep, making sure to take off all the wool in a single piece. Then you've got to skirt the wool, which is the process of trimming off everything you can't use. After that, you need to go through the tedious process of cleaning and washing the wool, removing every twig, leaf, and blade of grass, while making sure that you don't actually mat the wool together and turn it into felt. If you do that, it's game over, you can't spin it. Next comes the carding process, which means you've got to untangle each individual fiber of wool and form them into what's called a rolag, which is a loose cylinder of wool. After that, you need to spin it by hand using a spinning wheel, ply it, which is when you wrap threads around each other to create a thicker strand, wash it, and weave it or knit it by hand. But if you thought that was bad, wool's got nothing on cotton. I'll briefly explain the process of modern cotton cloth manufacturing. You start off with a bale of cotton. You've got to break the bale, and then you've got to willow it. And then you've got to send it through the breaker and finishing structure. After that, you've got to card it, draw it, slub it, rove it, send it through a spinning frame, wind it, beam it, warp it, size it, and then weave it. Now, I can imagine that half of those words didn't really make sense. Um, that's not really the point. The point is that, as you can probably imagine, cotton products were expensive as hell before the rise of the factory system. And in that time, textile products were produced under something called the putting out system, which was when someone came to your house with everything you needed to make thread or yarn or anything like that, left, and then came back later to pick it up. That's actually where we get the term cottage industry from. Then in 1721, something happens. John and Thomas Loam apply water power to the silk spinning process and create, essentially, the world's first factory in Derby, England. The funny part is, it was never really successful. 
The Loam brothers had an incredibly hard time importing raw silk from Italy, and as a result, never made the windfall profits that they were hoping on. The unfunny part is, in an unsurprising setting of precedent, the Loam mill was staffed almost entirely by children. The idea of the factory spread rather slowly, and initially was almost entirely concerned with textile manufacturing. Throughout this period, the Derby silk mill remained important. There was practically nothing like it in the entire world, and observers seemed to recognize that the future, for which the Loam's mill had opened the door, would be a new and alien place. In England, the birthplace of the factory system, great fortunes would not necessarily be made spinning silk, but spinning cotton. In the latter half of the 1700s, demand for cotton went through the roof due to deregulation, an issue that was only exacerbated by Eli Whitney's 1794 invention of the cotton gin. In order to solve the supply issue, by the start of the 1800s, over 90% of all cotton spun in British mills was grown by slaves in the United States. And so we can already see that from the very beginning, the explosion of the factory system is inextricably linked to the spread of slavery. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. In the chronology of the Industrial Revolution, the next guy that comes along is called Richard Arkwright, and in 1769, he does something pretty important. He invents the water frame, which is a mechanical spinning frame powered by a water wheel that produces cotton thread. Now, I think it's pretty difficult to overstate the importance of Richard Arkwright, because this is the guy who popularized the factory system, and through building a series of his own mills around England, spread the idea of industrialization all around the country. Arkwright's mills employed mostly children. I think at this point, you can probably tell where I'm going with this. And so it probably wouldn't be a good use of either of our time for me to continue down the factory chronology, getting to a guy after guy after guy and telling you that he just loved child labor. I think something that would be far more poignant would be if I talked about the actual conditions in those mills. The Industrial Revolution is the first time that work hours are ever standardized, which is made slightly more complex of an issue given that the fact that almost nobody who works in a mill is going to own a clock. As economic historian David Landis once wrote, the factory was a new kind of prison, the clock a new kind of jailer. Richard Arkwright's Cromford Mill ran 24 hours a day. Children as young as seven worked 13-hour shifts in the oppressively loud, hot, and foul-smelling mill, watched by overseers who would not hesitate to beat them if they spoke to the worker next to them. To keep the children awake over the course of their shifts, they would be regularly beaten with wooden poles and leather straps. The average work week 
lasted over 70 hours. It should not come as a surprise then that people weren't necessarily lining up to work at knitting mills. That didn't matter though. Mill owners took children from orphanages and were actually given legal custody over them by the government. They were now technically apprentices. They could not quit, and if they ran away, they'd be arrested. Some of these children were as young as five years old. It eventually came to be that anyone, apprentice or not, leaving their job at a knitting mill could face jail time. It was slavery that produced the cotton, and it was slavery that wove it. It is unsurprising, then, that those who defended the institution of slavery also defended the factory system, instead choosing to blame the workers for their own exploitation. In 1773, British politician Samuel Martin described factory workers as, quote, slaves of necessity. This is kind of a trend during this period, torturing workers and then blaming them for it. Accordingly, it's also a time of really shitty arguments from supporters of the factory system. A lot of them are pretty much saying that, ah, you see, we're actually helping children because we're giving them a job. Without us, they'd be destitute. And prominent Irish writer William Cook Taylor actually made almost this exact same cartoon villain argument when he said, quote, I would rather see boys and girls earning the means of support in the mill than starving on the roadside, shivering on the pavement, or even conveyed in an omnibus to Bridewell. For reference, Bridewell refers to Bridewell Palace, which was turned into a prison in 1556. But what's interesting to notice here is that Cook Taylor, as well as a number of others, including Thomas Carlyle, a 19th century writer whose work strongly influenced the identity of Nazism, um, these people don't believe that the proliferation of the factory system is causing poverty. Rather, the destitution of the workers is due to things outside of the employer's control, mainly the incompetence of the factory workers themselves. Now, this is bullshit for a number of reasons. Chief among them is the profoundly stupid idea that the people who decide what workers are paid are not responsible if their workers live in poverty conditions. There's also this other implication from that argument, that factory workers are poor because of personal flaws, uh, which implicitly supports the monumentally stupid argument that poor people are poor because they're stupid, and therefore rich people must be rich because they're smart. That's an argument that I've talked about before on the show, so I'm not going to go super in-depth into that one right now. I suppose, though, that the underlying question in this week's episode is about the romance of the factory. In American culture in particular, we have a historical fascination with the industrial. We have this fixation that factory jobs are good, honest, American jobs. They represent to us 
a mythical past where things were better? Why do you think every person that runs for president promises to bring back American factories? Now, I am aware, I am very aware, that I just made a huge chronological jump from 1800s England to modern America. And I'm not trying to say that modern American working conditions are in any way comparable to those in the Industrial Revolution. Thankfully, we have labor laws and no longer work 70 hours a week for slave wages. What I am saying is that the American cultural relationship with the factory system is perverse. As Henry George once said, material progress not only fails to relieve poverty, it actually produces it. I'm saying that the alluring freedom of laissez-faire economics ends up being freedom for the barracuda and not for the minnow. This episode might seem like it was a little bit strange, and that's because it was largely intended to be a primer for a longer episode specifically about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory that I have planned coming up in the next couple weeks. So if you have a question or a lingering desire for knowledge that's gone unanswered here, hopefully I'll get to them in the follow-up. If not, let me know. A large amount of the research for this episode came from the incredible book Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World by Joshua Freeman. If you simply cannot wait to hear me talk more about factories, I'd suggest that you pick up a copy. It's definitely worth the read. Speaking of books, I've actually just written my second one, It's called Structural Politics, Ideology and the Built World. It's about the intersectionality between architecture and politics, and if that's something you might be interested in, there's a link on the front page of hiddenhistory.show. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.